welcome to the RSP Film and Theory. And of course, this show is just so bright that Adam Harstead has, you know, I can't even go there. Okay. So, but listen, you know, it's, it's fun to have Adam joining us here. Um, I'm the one with the bad jokes. And uh, let, let's start t today. We're going to talk a little bit about, you know, maximizing dart throws or concentrating value, whether it's an either or situation or are we really just you know thinking about you know is is this really just kind of symptomatic of something else um and then you know we'll talk a little bit more about trevor lawrence um that's a that's been kind of a hot topic as of late and contextually contextualization of certain data and how that can be valuable um and finish up with um development in the nfl something you know kyle shanahan had a had a quote in a press conference that um, was recorded on video by Kyle Posey, a league mate of mine who covers the 49ers. Um, and it really brought up the whole idea or kind of bashed the myth of they'll get coached up once they get to the NFL, something that a lot of us in this community have been kind of trying to tell people for 10 years to stop saying, stop writing about, stop assuming as a fan, um, and how that has impact on how you look at um, – you know rookies and developing players so so adam you know of course you know the work that you do at football guys is must read material and in your dynasty in theory this week it was the in, in defense of dart throws saying that dart throws can be good especially if you have a lot of darts so i'm giving you the dart board let us know uh you, you know what's going on here yeah, so uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald has a quote. He says, the um, uh, the test of a first-rate intelligence is the ability to hold two opposed ideas in mind at the same time and still retain the ability to function, uh, which people like to use that to justify hypocrisy. And that really wasn't what Fitzgerald was talking about at the time. And in the context, he was actually talking about um, like agitating for societal change. And on the one hand, you know that like it's hopeless. Society is this giant slow moving monolith like you can't stand athwart history yelling stop um and so on the one hand you can recognize intellectually it's hopeless and on the other hand you can also recognize intellectually that it's worthwhile um and that this is something that that not only should you be doing but must you be doing it's it's a moral imperative and those were the two contradictory ideas that like this doesn't matter but i should do it anyway that's that's what he was referring to he wasn't saying you know just be completely hypocritical and, and it doesn't matter. You don't need any sort of consistency or constancy. Um, but, you know, it's always a funny quote and it's an eye catching quote. And a lot of people would like to describe themselves as first rate intelligences. So they trot it out um, often. But, but as a quick aside, I'll just say this. I did enjoy today that I saw um, that the famous the, um, the physicist, Neil, um, oh, I don't remember. DeGrasse Tyson. DeGrasse Tyson was talking about watching a Bengals game and that the field goal was kicked and it bounced off the, the upright and in and he ran some calculations and posited that it, that it was actually a field goal aided by the earth's rotation um and that because of how close the field goal did that the slow moving monolith actually aided a, a game-winning field goal but uh that's just uh, when you said slow moving monolith i just made me yeah absolutely well so anyway it's a good thing nobody on the Bengals stood a, stood athwart history and yelled at it to stop. That's right. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah. So I like I I like having these excuses to justify why you know like there's no constancy in my opinions over time. Uh, and so last week I wrote that like actually it's good to concentrate value in fantasy football if if you have. 20 roster spots, you don't want 20 good players. You, it's, you're much better off with 10 great players and 10 bad players, or, or more realistically, you know, if you have eight spots in your starting lineup, you don't want eight good players. You want four great players and four terrible players, because if they score the same amount of points, it's very easy to improve on terrible. It's very hard to improve on good. And the goal in Dynasty, you want to have the best team for years to come. And to, to do that, you need to have stars at every position and if you have good players at every position but stars at none you are zero percent of the way to your stars at every position goal whereas if you have stars at four positions and terrible players at four positions you're halfway to your stars at every position's goal so i wrote last week that um 
or I guess two weeks ago now that that it's good to concentrate value and not just have like a bunch of decent players. Uh, so this this past week, I, I wanted to completely contradict myself and write in defense of the the complete opposite position where like, no, actually it's good to, instead of having like these two or three cornerstone anchors and a bunch of terrible players, like it's totally fine to have eight good, solid, promising young guys. Um, and the big reason why is that people tend to think of like star and scrub um, as like a binary. You know, this guy's a star, this guy is a scrub. But really, it's all kind of just like a, a, a probabilistic, um, it, it's it's a like a sliding scale. It's a probabilistic scale. You, you get a guy where like Justin Jefferson is very, 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 very likely a star. Like we're, we're pretty confident in this. We haven't been as confident that a receiver was going to dominate for 10 years since, uh, well, to be honest, Odell Beckham in 2016. And what happened to Odell Beckham after 2016, like he, he fell off. He had um, 2,600 yards over the next four years. He's never been back to the Pro Bowl. He um, got injured a lot. He's bounced around three or four different teams now, four different teams now. Um, and he, he looks like a shadow of his former self. And everybody who viewed Odell Beckham as a 100% star and rostered him in their dynasty teams, that was a gut punch to them. They were counting on him. You know, the appropriate stance was probably Odell Beckham is like a 95% star, but there's a 5% chance he's not. And, and the same is probably a more accurate way of looking at Justin Jefferson or Jamar Chase. Stuff happens. They're probably, I mean, I, I think we can be as confident in those guys as we can be in anyone. Um, you know, someone like Patrick Mahomes, we can be as confident in Mahomes as we can be in anyone, but it, you know, 99%. you're saying there's a chance. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. And similarly, the guys we think are like not that good, it's not that they're scrubs. It's that they're a 20% chance of being a star. You know, somebody like Cooper Cup heading into um, 2021, people are like, ah, Cooper Cup, he's just kind of a middling receiver. You know, he's he's a solid guy. You can put him in the lineup. He's not going to win your league for you. And then what did he do? He went on to win the league for you yeah. um, because people weren't respecting that probabilistic range of outcomes. Like where... Michael Carter for instance, right. you know, who just got cut by the Jets and added by the Cardinals. I mean, there's a poss he's good enough that there's a possibility. Maybe it's a 8 to 15% chance, you know, that kind of thing. I always say people, people love talking about upside, and they use it to justify doing what they wanted to do anyway. Like, I like this player, and I need a reason to justify, so I'm going to say he has high upside. And, and usually when they talk about upside, they're talking about, like, 99th percentile outcome. But the problem is the 99th percentile outcome for everyone is Hall of Famer, right? Yeah. Kurt Warner entered the NFL in 94 or 95, couldn't stick with the team, uh, went and played, uh, was it arena football? Or I don't even think it was arena yeah. football, like Euro football or something. He was working as a bag boy at a grocery store. He landed with the St. Louis Rams, um, and he was the backup. And he had zero career pass attempts, or I think he had four career pass attempts. I think it was his second year with the Rams. And Trent Green went down and got injured. Um, and Kurt Warner went on to lead the highest scoring offense in NFL history. He went on to be a first ballot Hall of Famer. If that is in the range of outcomes of like a former um, Euro Football League bag boy, it's yeah. in everybody's range of outcomes. That's yeah. it. We're talking 99.9th percentile. Every player in the NFL, like every receiver, is capable of a Cooper Cup season. Or or there's no receiver that we can say definitively is not capable of that. Obviously, there are some receivers who, with the benefit of hindsight, will know, you know, they just didn't have it. But in advance, we can't say that. So upside, I'm not... I think that it's, it's never really looked at as a rigorous thing. Um, and so I do a lot of work with upside. And, and when you get down and you quantify it and you're talking about range of outcomes and, and things like that, um, yeah, Michael Carter could be a, you know, 1600 yard rusher next year for the Cardinals. That's, that's absolutely within his range of outcomes. Um, it's just a question of how likely is it? Um, and the nice thing about aggregating dart throws is it, of, of getting a bunch of guys who have a 20% chance of being a star is that individually the chances of any of those dart throws, throws paying off is really quite low. But if you get a bunch of them, uh, if you get four 
of those guys who each have a 20% chance of being a star, there's a 60% chance that one of them is going to be a star. Those, those odds compound. There's even, you know, a small chance that you might get two stars or even three stars out of it if you get lucky. And so people think of like low probability bets at the individual level, but low probability bets become high probability bets at the higher level. So I, I think one of the more fun ways to build a dynasty team is to roster a bunch of like wide receivers in the 20 to 40 range of the dynasty rankings and especially wide receivers of a specific profile which we'll get to in a little bit but roster a bunch of guys in that range get like six or seven guys and it's a very uncomfortable feeling heading into the season trying to compete without like any trump card you, you you're looking at your starting lineup and you're like i don't honestly expect any individual one of these guys to be that good this year but if you get enough of them, it's exceedingly likely that two or three of them will be. You just don't know in advance which two or three. Um, so yeah, the one thing too is is if you're going to go this route, you need to be intentional about what kinds of receivers you're adding. Um, typically younger guys, second or third year players. Um, you want guys who might be catastrophically bad like, you don't want guys you're pretty sure are pretty solid. You want guys who, like, you just have no idea. Like, maybe these guys are just atrocious. Maybe they just can't play. Um, a lot of rookies and second-year receivers. Um, I had a, a dynasty league where I entered the season with um, Jamar Chase, Jalen Waddell, T. Higgins, and Marquise Brown. And, like, Higgins and, and, and other guys, too. I had Elijah Moore. I had guys that didn't hit uh, Henry Ruggs. And Higgins was my highest-ranked guy in redraft at 20th. Um, and then nobody else was even in the top 36, I don't believe. Um, in, well, I guess Chase was probably like 32 or something. But these were not guys that were expected to be good. But then, you know, Chase had a historic rookie year. Um, Waddle had a fantastic rookie year. Marquise Brown outperformed expectations. T. Higgins outperformed expectations from people who thought that, like, if Chase did well, that there would be nothing left over for Higgins. Um, some of my other guys busted spectacularly. You know, Elijah Moore completely fell off. And I, I had high hopes for him but they didn't pan out and um that was the year henry ruggs um tragically killed a woman in that in that car wreck and basically ended his nfl career um so you get some hits and you get some misses individually any of those outcomes was unlikely but looking at it in the aggregate given how many young and talented and highly drafted receivers i had it's not at all surprising that i wound up with some top 12 top 20 receivers out of it yeah, it makes total sense, you know. So who are some of the receiver types that you're that you're referring to that you should be looking at? Well, I don't scout. So for me it's always youth and draft capital. Okay. Um anybody who was who you know is in their first or second year under 24 um who was drafted in maybe like the first, second, maybe the third round, um depending on how much you're paying to acquire the profile. Um and especially guys who like we just don't know about you know if somebody's in their third year and they played a ton of snaps and they're in the same situation i'm a little bit less excited about that than if they're in the first year on a new team or if they're um you know a complete unknown so uh guys like marvin mims rasheed rice Jaden reed kind of those mid-tier rookie receivers sure. um, individually the chances are quite low but if you get three or four of them somebody's probably going to step up in the next year or two um, and then, you, of course, you have the higher, um, like the higher quality prospects, the first rounders, Quentin Johnson, um, Zay Flowers, uh, Jordan Addison, Drake London, mm -hmm. guys like that. Um, so young guys is always good. Um, Would you prioritize, for instance, say, like if versus a third or fourth year player who you've seen a ton of snaps and nothing's come of it? Would you then prioritize someone, say, like a Keishon Boutte, who is an undrafted free agent, but you you know, you've heard things about it. Would he be someone you'd say, I might be inclined to take him over that pro that guy who's proven nothing for me? Yeah, so Butte hasn't really popped off in, in the ways that I look for. Sure. Um, you know, I'm looking for, like, guys who are getting on the field and who are highly productive in very gotcha. limited roles. and hope. But um, I know that he has popped off in, like, you know, there's other paths to knowledge. I know you do a lot of film scouting and, and your film scouting has led you to believe he's good. And I like listening to people with other areas of expertise. Um, so I do have Butte sitting on my taxi squad on one of my teams based largely on your endorsement um, or, you know, someone like Matt Harmon, if he comes out in full-throated support of a player, like 
Yeah. And it depends on the cost too. Yeah. I was um, just thinking like, like as um, a prioritization, like, would you go with like it, trying to figure out a way of categorizing like, okay, Hey, if you know, if you've had a proven, if you have a proven guy who's done a lot of snaps and done nothing, would you start going even lower on your draft capital with guys and put them over that that guy who's had a lot of snaps but done little like a demarcus robinson you know for instance yeah i just added um dontavian wicks in one of my dynasty good leagues. call um like just that. because again it's it's that very limited sample but he's doing like really interesting things on that limited sample and most of the time what's going to happen is the guy gets a bigger sample he's put in situations that are maybe less favorable to a skill set and he's not able to maintain that edge um and that's that's my expectation. Maybe the fact that Dontavian Wicks is able to successfully expand his role without losing the things that look so exciting about him, maybe they're 10%. But again, you get a lot of those 10% dart throws. Um, I'm even looking right now to see who's on my waiver wire well, that as, I think would like well, classically was, be rated higher. Well, well, while you look, I'll, I'll give you an example. I'll, I'll comment on Wicks and give you another example from a team like uh, from my own, one of my own dynasty leagues is uh Wicks actually is a client of a quarterback coach by the name or a um, wide receiver coach by the name of Drew Lieberman, who I've done a lot of work with. And I've, I've applied a lot of what he, he teaches to pro players to how I evaluate um, wide receiver talent. I mean, probably, you know, this board was filled with basically everything that I could learn from him about wide receiver play from his videos to conversations we've had on, on podcasts multiple times, you name it. And I spent a couple of years really working through a lot of that. Um, and Wicks is one of his players. And he told me last year before the draft, he's like, he's like, he's going to be valued. He goes, I really like him. And from what I've seen of him working with him, he's going to be more valuable than I think people realize, even if his capital isn't quite there. Um, he's one of those guys that I think could be eventually grow into a starter and you know he's worked with guys like Julian Edelman. He's worked with Mohamed Sanu. He's also worked with guys like Alameda Zacchaeus. And um, trying to think of another Atlanta player, he used to say that the that the two Atlanta players um, didn't get didn't get the opportunities that they probably deserve. But you know it was interesting. You know some of the things he's mentioned there with Wicks. He's a guy I definitely have an eye on. But like when you talk about guys with that middling draft capital. You know, I have a team right now that has Keenan Allen, Adam Thielen, and Michael Thomas, and they and I'm looking. You know, last year or entering this year, I'm going. This is an old starting trio. I need to get young, like, and I need to do something. And and so I started getting rid of players that I really knew weren't gonna do much for me. Who just, you know, and I started taking chances. So Butte was one of them, but also. So it was Jaden Reed and Puka Nakua. And so suddenly, you know, you know, Puka Nakua, Jaden Reed, Khalil Shakir, Butte, these were guys that I added kind of to your idea, you know, without thinking of it from it in that structure of a terms. And I would say, you know, Reed's been intriguing and helpful at times. Puka Nakua obviously has been a huge hit. So, you know, as kind of an example of that from my end, I can supply that. Yeah, so I just looked up some of the guys who tend to be rated higher in in dynasty rankings. If you look at dynasty rankings, um, who I like, I just passed over to because I think Wix is a more interesting dart throw. Uh, Juju's on waivers, um, and I like Juju as a player, but you know the odds that I think like the the seventieth percentile outcome for Juju is just not that exciting anymore. Yeah. Uh, Chase Claypool, Van Jefferson, Mecole Hardman. Um, Isaiah Hodgins, Devontae Parker, uh, you know, they're, they're good players. Um, LaVisca Chenault, although I, I think that might just kind of be a legacy ranking. I think he's pretty much an afterthought in Dynasty now. Yeah. Um, you know, they're, they're good players. They're interesting veterans. I, I honestly, like, if you asked me the median outcome, if, if both players play to, like, the 50th percentile in the range of outcomes, I think every one of those guys is probably a better receiver than Dontavian Wicks. Um, but, you know, I, I always say, if you're adding a guy off waivers, the most likely outcome is that he's bad. That's why he was on waivers. So you need to look at, like, these 90th percentile, 85th percentile outcomes. Um, and Wix is good. Um, for me, 
especially at the end of the at, at the end of my bench, I'm just looking for one reason to believe in a guy. Whether it's they're looking kind of exciting in a very limited role, um, whether it's um, you know maybe they have the endorsement of somebody who does a lot of scouting like yourself or Matt Harmon. Maybe it's that you know they were drafted highly. You know he was a second round pick and like sure he looks awful, but he's got this draft capital. Um, I just need one reason to take a chance on a guy. Um, and it doesn't matter if they've got three or four other warts on their profile. Because, uh, again, the most likely outcome for everybody is that they're just not that good. Um, so I'm looking for some sort of trump card. Um, Rashid Shahid was a guy last year who um, I added that's kind of in this profile where, yeah, like, yeah, he was later draft pick. Um, but and he was doing some pretty exciting stuff. And I still like him. I'm, I'm still holding him. I think he's got... Um, some good potential as a, as a low percentage dart throw. Um, and then, yeah, I really like um, some of the, the higher percentage guys, a lot of like second round receivers um, or third rounders, Josh Downs, Jaden Reed. I think these are just categorically a, a higher quality, um, higher percentage dart throw. Um, but it's good to just load up on at, even the super low guys like Dontavian Wicks. If you get eight of them, you know, one of them will probably hit. You don't know in advance which one, but but the, the biggest limit is just roster size at that point. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. So, okay. So, you know, fascinating, I mean, in terms of where we go that. But, I mean, I like the, the, the talk of what you said, though, you know, at the end of this too, and saying, you know, at the end of the day, you know, whether you're going to do dart throws or you're going to concentrate on, on value, it's about just maximizing roster value at the end of the day. I mean, right. These are all, like you said, you don't subscribe to any single approach. It's about, you know, just maximizing value. Yeah, I have done the super concentrated rosters when when that was where the value was in my league, when my league mates were falling in love with, with getting like 80 prospects on their roster and I was able to get some cheap kind of package up kind of deals. Um, I have done the zillions of dart throws approach. Um, I do think that that like more concentrated rosters tend to be a little bit less stressful because you know like where your production is going to be. You're never entering a season saying like I have no idea who is going to be starting for receiver at me at midseason. Um, and then also like weekly start sit decisions. If you only have three good receivers, okay, I'm going to start those three. That's fine. That's easy. And if if something goes bad you're not, there's no recriminations. You're not beating yourself up over it. You know, oh yeah, what was I going to do? Bench Jamar Chase? Like he had a bad game, but you know, I started him. There's no, whereas if you have like eight guys who are all valued pretty similarly and you're like, all right, I'm going to roll with these three and those three have terrible games and the next three on your list all blow up. You're like, oh man, I should have known. And oh, why didn't I consider this? And ah, um, so there's, there's something to be said from like just a mental equilibrium standpoint um, for getting a roster where there's fewer decisions required at any given moment. And there's like a lot less uncertainty in terms of like, what is the path going forward here? Um, but it's also fun too. the dart throw roster. I, like I said, the, if the goal in dynasty is to have studs stars at every position, um, the best way to do that is if you have eight guys who could be stars and three of them hit, now you have three stars. Whereas if you have two guys who definitely are stars and then you still need a third star, like the, the, the dart throw approach can get you a lot of stars in a very short of time um, as that team with, with Jamar Chase and T Higgins and Jalen Waddle and Marquise Brown demonstrated. If a lot of, if you get a disproportionate number of hits um, you're going to get really good, really fast um, flip side, of course, is if you get a disproportionately low number of hits, um, you're going to have some seasons where you felt like you really could have made some noise and it just never comes together for you. Yeah, no, that's a great point. That's definitely a great point. So let's move on to talking about contextualization of of data a little bit more. And, you know, a good example of that, I think, this time is you asked me a couple of weeks ago about my thoughts on um, Trevor Lawrence and and after hearing you, you know, after you asking about it here and then getting some questions about it, um, you know, over the next past couple of weeks, I, I thought I'd pose that to the roundtable at Football Guys as a kind of a value question. Like, what's the perceived value of these players? Do you think these players are higher or lower than their perceived value right now? Um, 
And multiple folks on our staff argued that, you know, Trevor Lawrence was lower than his perceived value. He's just not that good. Um, and they cited a lot of the, the data and including turnover stats, turnover differential and turnovers per game this year and said, hey, you know, and they were clearly aware of the idea of, look, Urban Meyer's crimes against football, notwithstanding and giving him a mulligan in year one. If we still look at this year, it wasn't very, it's not very strong, especially you know, how little he's scoring relative to what's going on. And then there's the narrative of they got a number one receiver in Calvin Ridley, which I would respond, did they? Um, you, you know, and, and that was kind of my thought into the preseason, though I kind of, like a lot of people, continued to raise Ridley up my board. But I, I, I did have Kirk by the end of it still as the number one receiver on the Jaguars um, heading into the year. Um just because I've watched enough Ridley in Atlanta to know that he doesn't have a huge drop percentage, even though this year he's 12th most in drops of catchable passes that he's had. Um, but he's not, he doesn't make the quality of catches you're looking for from a primary. He's close. Like he makes those back shoulder plays. He, he can make, you know, he's a vertical receiver, does really well there. But the tough over the middle plays that often define what a, a primary receiver can do in the intermediate levels of the field aren't always his strength from what I've observed. Like it may not be a high percentage, but there I've seen enough in Atlanta of timely drops um, that it was um, or untimely drops that it was a bit of an issue and the, the layoff that he's had on top of that. So, I mean, for me, a primary receiver should be a guy that can work every area of the field man to man and you don't have to say, well, he's better in zone in the middle of the field, you know, or that much better in zone in the middle of the field, that much worse against man in the middle of the field. And, and so really to me, he's really a 1B to a team's 1A, kind of a Devonta Smith-like player. Um, and, and But Christian Kirk, I would argue, it, while not as explosive as Calvin Ridley, might actually be a more versatile 1B than Calvin Ridley is as a 1B. So they kind of have a conundrum right now because they don't have – that one guy um and but and then you have the offensive line so when I started looking at at Trevor Lawrence I I I just isolated first my look at every turnover that he had this year and and thought about you know what was the context for these turnovers and what was fascinating Adam is that um you know there were seven turnovers and he had you know, as an example, he had two interceptions that he threw that bounced off Tank Bigsby's hands and then draw and were tipped in skyward and ended up into the um, arms of a, of a defender. He had two laterals that were dropped, literally bounced off the hands. Um, there were just passes thrown out that you would think of as incomplete passes, but the NFL scores them as fumbles and they put the responsibility on the quarterback. He also had two snaps. <laughs> um, that from the center over, directly over his head too high for him to reach again they don't count the center as a ball carrier so therefore it's on the quarterback so I just mentioned six turnovers that were really if you're just looking from a common sense point of view you would say that's not his fault but technically they're scored as his fault so if if someone were to make a characterization based on the data He's careless with the football, I would say. And and what they would do normally is they'll watch him. They'll watch him take a sack where he's holding the ball as he's climbing forward. And he's got the ball away from his arm. And they say, see, he's just careless with the football. He has six fumbles that, you know, six fumbles this year. And you're like, or seven fumbles this year. And you're like, well, yeah, he does this. So do a lot of quarterbacks who also don't have a high fumble rate. Um and the difference is, is that they didn't have these crazy scenarios happen this year that were all scored as his fault that weren't his fault. Um, and, you know, and then you could go further into the stats and start looking at things like, okay, so when he gets hit, he gets blindsided on a going, you know, dropping back for a pass. And, you know, you could say, well, ultimately that might be his fault. But then there's some questionable ones where you look at it and say, if you're at the top of your drop 
you know, you finally take the last step at the top of your prescribed drop and the, and you're blindsided by a defender who beats the tackle and the arc is so wide that there's no way you can say he, he should see that on his periphery and that he's supposed to account for the left tackle. It's not like a corner blitz where he, that, that free corner blitzer is his man to account for, which I've seen him do very well. It's actually a defensive end or a linebacker who's assigned that the left tackle is assigned to take and the and the left tackle, you know, completely whiffs. Well, if he's got his arm right here at the top of his release point and he gets hit, do you look at that and say that was careless ball security? Or do you look at that and saying he got hit a split second before his arms coming forward at the top of his drop on a pass where, you know, now you might say that the stats will wash all that out, you know, but I, that's the interesting thing to me because when I look at the data and I count the things that were attributed to him that I would say, I wouldn't say that's careless, you know, four of his six fumbles and two of his six interceptions would have been removed from the equation, which suddenly dramatically changes his ranking from like 24th and turnover per game to like sixth best uh, as opposed to 24th best. And then from 32nd to like 14th or 15th in the range of like Mahomes and Derek Carr and like respectable, you know, respectable performance. And suddenly that argument that his turnover, his turnover and turnover to TD percentage is really bad and you know suddenly doesn't really hold that much water but then you have to make the argument adam is you know as i'm sure you would is well you got to do that for every player for you know okay so uh, you know no. so, so because i would think you don't do that for every player but even so my counter counter would have been for this would have been how many how many of these players actually have had this crazy confluence of snaps over the head rookie rookie multiple times creating interceptions and offensive line being so bad that like literally split second like th there was even a play like DeForest Buckner hits Lawrence on a play where he's about to bring the ball forward and everybody on the field assumes it's an incomplete pass for about three or four seconds and then finally the Colts one of the Colts defenders realizes they didn't blow the whistle and and Buckner's able to circle back around, grab the ball, and run into the end zone, and it was counted as a score. You, you know, so um, you know it plays like that aren't ones that you look at and say that's on the quarterback, especially when the quarterback often makes positive plays where he's throwing while being hit, like when he's hit by a Steelers blitzer and completes a thirty-yard pass to. Kirk or makes a sidearm throw with a the Houston Texans defender in his face and hits a 15 yard out with that. You know, if he waited, if it was just a split second later, the same thing could have ensued positive or negative. These aren't plays that I look at and say, that's a bad decision by the quarterback. There's other factors that are involved. So, you know, your thoughts on what I'm talking about, especially the part of where you say that you'd have to normalize it for everybody. Yeah, I think for reputable statistics, sure, absolutely. If you're going to treat somebody some way, you need to treat everybody that way to get a fair comparison. But we were talking a couple of weeks ago, turnover rate is not a reputable statistic. It's just not. It's too random. It's too stochastic. It's too determined, determined by, by chance and circumstance. It varies wildly from one sample to the next. Yards per carry is the same thing. That everybody says, well, if you take away his long run, he only had whatever. If you take away every running back's long runs, every running back in the NFL averages 3.4 yards per carry. Like, that's just how yards per carry works. Everybody has the same yard per carry average. Yard per, yard per carry is just, like, the tendency to have long runs. Um, so, no, I, I don't I don't feel especially compelled to, to do the same analysis for all quarterbacks, mostly just because I would say that, like, eh, turnover rate's irrelevant. You know, it it's not irrelevant, but it... From a functional standpoint, it is close enough to irrelevant for our purposes that it can be treated as such. Because <laughs> you talk about regression anyway, and right. then what goes on with that. So yeah. Right. Like Aaron Rodgers, I'm confident, is very good at avoiding turnovers. Um, and then, like, a lot of times there's quarterbacks who just are not NFL caliber, and clearly not NFL caliber. And I, they, I completely believe that they are bad at turnovers. Nathan Peterman, yes, he's going to turn the ball <laughs> right. over a lot. But for anybody between, like... 
the 30th percentile and the 90th percentile in quarterback play, they're all functionally interchangeable from a turnover standpoint. Same thing with kickers. You know, anybody who's not Justin Tucker, there. Some people will have better years, more accurate years. Some people will have less accurate years. But I think as a as a first order approximation, just assume that every kicker in the NFL is equally accurate, except for Justin Tucker. Um, and at some point, you know, Father Time's going to catch up to Justin Tucker, and and we can get rid of that exception. Uh, so yeah, I in the interest of treating every quarterback the same way, I did pull up Pro Football Focus to look at. They track a, a stat called turnover worthy play percentage. Um, and among all quarterbacks with uh, about 230 dropbacks, which there's 26 qualifying quarterbacks, Trevor Lawrence um, ranks uh, tied for 17th in turnover-worthy plays, so like kind of right in the middle. And looking at the list, I think is very instructive because the three players just ahead of him, who with so it's. Um, uh, or yeah, the four players. So there's Bryce Young and Lamar Jackson have a 3.0% turnover worthy play rate. Sam Howell and Jalen Hurts and Trevor Lawrence all have a 3.2% turnover worthy play rate. Okay, so far so good. But then the names right after Lawrence, uh, Patrick Mahomes and Justin Herbert are, um, are 20th and 21st at 3.3% turnover worthy play rate. Then you get Geno Smith at 3.6% and Joshua Dobbs at 4.2%, who, like, I think Dobbs has been, if anything, like a revelation at quarterback this year. And then you get Brock Purdy at 4.6%, where Brock Purdy, like, his whole, like, the whole argument for him was he was, like, one of the least turnover-prone quarterbacks in the entire league. And this is just showing that, like, it's just random chance. It's variation. It's noise. You know, Purdy is in that 30th to 90th percentile of quarterback play where there's nothing really meaningfully meaningful to be drawn from his observed turnover rate. Yeah. So if you want to do an analysis that that leads to people ignoring Trevor Lawrence's turnover rate, I support that just because I think that people should ignore everybody's turnover rate. That's not yeah. what we should care about in quarterback play. Um, should you do it for other players? Sure, if it means they're going to ignore other players' turnover rate too. That's <laughs> that's a positive good. Um, yeah, and I makes, think the thing and about it, and it's ironic yeah, too that you bring up Brock Purdy because Brock Purdy at Iowa State was known for his turnovers. You know, yep. I mean, so the it was kind of stunning, stunningly funny for me to like watch a player who I was like, God, he better not try and throw these balls across his body like he's doing at Iowa State here because he's almost making them here. But I just, I don't, man, he's going to get creamed in an offense where if he tries to do that. And it, and then I'm sitting here watching this and just laughing that he's like actually making a lot of these throws. Like just last week, um, he made, or two weeks ago, I think it was where he made one against Jacksonville where he threw it basically to the back of the end zone. I'm going, why the fuck did you throw that ball? Like, I mean, I just, just laughing at the idea and I'm going, and he's becoming known. It's funny what people, the narrative, what people think a player is known for and then what he really is known for and how that can just be so changeable based on the principles that you're talking about. Here. Right. I mean, yeah, like to throw a nail in the turnovers, you know, like, should we consider turnovers for quarterbacks? Uh, Josh Allen currently ranks seventh best in turnover worthy play rate. 2.4%, only only six quarterbacks have a lower rate. And what's the narrative today? Oh, the Bills are never going to unlock their offense because Josh Allen is too mistake-prone. He turns the ball over too much. The guys who are tied with Josh Allen at 2.4% turnover-worthy play rate, C.J. Stroud, who, you know, like he's famously avoiding turnovers, he's he's having plays that where the ball could turn over at the same rate Josh Allen is. Allen's getting unlucky. Stroud is getting lucky, and we get these wildly different narratives. And then the other guy who's tied with them, which I think is absolutely hilarious, is Zach Wilson. Zach Wilson has a 2.4% <laughs> turnover play rate, right. um, which I have no reason to doubt that. Pro Football Focus is charting the games. I believe that, obviously, a lot of these definitions are nebulous, and maybe their idea of a turnover-worthy play is not exactly the same as mine, We've but I think it's going to be directionally yeah. consistent. But it just shows that like avoiding turnovers is not what makes a quarterback good making positive plays is what makes a quarterback good. You know, if you have a quarterback who never makes any mistakes, never takes a sack, never throws the ball away, and also never makes a positive play, he's the worst quarterback in NFL history. If, if he never gains a yard, 
he's like I could get on the field and never gain a yard yeah. if that's the remit. The, so you, you just touched upon something that quarterback coaches, uh, you know, with working with pros have joked with me about. They've said, "Listen, you know, every coach." Basically, in in terms of scheme theory and in terms of how think players are supposed to play out, the right answer at the end of the day, if you go through everything that they're supposed to go through, is a checkdown. You know who the the best checkdown player is ever currently in the NFL? Alex Smith. You know, and this was before like he had his Pro Bowl season and Patrick Mahomes then took over. But they were they brought that up, and I just laughed. And I'm thinking, yeah, because quarterback as i've always joked is basically playing chess in a barroom brawl in the middle of a barroom brawl and there's and there's rules where you can weaponize the chess pieces and you know one of the best ever to do that was brett Favre, who didn't know scheme extremely well and made tons and tons of mistakes but he also made timely positive plays and so many more of them that it overwhelmed the negative in terms of enough that he was a multiple-time MVP and multiple times, you know, and one-time Super Bowl winner, you know. Yeah, I always advocate looking at quarterback play as, as a series of intentional trade-offs. Um, and I, you've used the three-legged stool for fantasy football, and and I I think the three-legged stool is a useful way of looking at it. Where um, when pressure arrives, a quarterback has to make a choice. What are we going to do in the face of that pressure? And the three choices they can make are they can force the football, get it out, just take the best thing that's available. You know, doing that's going to lead to more positive plays, but it's also going to lead to more turnovers. Option two is they can try to evade, avoid the pressure, extend the play. You know, doing that's going to lead to more positive plays, but it's also going to lead to more sacks. Or they can check down, dump it off, throw the ball away. They're going to avoid turnovers. They're going to avoid sacks, but they're also largely going to avoid positive plays. And it's it's a profile. Every quarterback has a profile. Like, obviously, good quarterbacks are making trade-offs at a higher level than bad quarterbacks, but they're still making these trade-offs. Russell Wilson, um, you know, I think will go down as a Hall of Famer when he retires, but he's still making the same trade-offs. When pressure arrives, Wilson's choice is, I'm going to try to evade this pressure. I'm going to try to keep the play alive until something good develops downfield, and then I'm going to take it. And that led to a lot of success. He had like a perfect passer rating targeting Tyler Lockett one season and, and Lockett kind of made a career of being that guy who like his job is when Russ decides to make something happen, Lockett has to, to get open and give him, give him someone to throw to down the field. Um, and Lockett was great at that. Um, but he's making those trade-offs. Someone like Aaron Rodgers is making trade-offs. You know, Rodgers famously avoids turnovers, but like his positive play rate, like his yards per attempt compared to other first ballot Hall of Fame top 10 all-time quarterbacks, it's it's shockingly low um, because he's not chucking downfield. He's he's taking the sacks and he's um, he's dumping down and, and taking like the smaller, safer plays. Um, you know, Peyton Manning uh, would force the ball into tight windows. And yeah, that led to a higher interception rate than a lot of the other um, top quarterbacks might have. But it also led to like nobody got a first down on a higher percentage of his dropbacks than Peyton Manning because pressure arrives a, and Peyton's Manning like he's aggressive. All. I want he had, yeah, he right. was an aggressive player. And that's a, and, you know, the, one of the things that come, come to mind about this, if you really want to like if you really want to be like a buzzkill for an, for an evening. Go go to Netflix or whatever place you like to watch TV these days, and turn on a comedian that you like, and uh, and take a pad out, and literally put in one column, funny jokes, not so funny jokes, and literally count how many uh, funny to unfunny jokes actually are. And yes, we know this is subjective, okay, but you'll you'll find that the that oftentimes even your favorite comedians have a lot of just bad jokes like that just you you're like yeah that didn't make me like maybe you make set the thing to being like just like very basic just say did i did i truly just laugh like uncontrollably or did i just kind of chuckle at this and anything that's just like a a chuckle like a polite chuckle or or silence is bad joke you know and you will look at this and go shit, I wasted an hour of my life watching this comedian, you know? I mean, that's how you would probably feel after you've judged that. But in reality, if you were, you know, having a couple of drinks, hanging out with your spouse, you know, whatever, and you're 
and you're watching this, you probably came away from it and said, man, that was awesome. I'm, I, I really enjoy that. And because, because oftentimes you're talking to somebody else and go, well, wait for this part. If you've seen it before, you're even going, it gets funnier, you know, wait, wait for this, you know, because you naturally presume that with performers without way, especially with like improvisational performers, like football players or music, a lot of musicians, there's lots of things that if you really looked at the best ones are the ones that when they make a mistake, you don't realize that they made a mistake or you realize, or they, they turn that mistake into something better than what was intended. Um, and that happens a lot more than people realize. And in football, it happens a lot more than people realize too, is that sometimes it's just like, yeah, I, I, you know, we meant to try to do this, but then, you know, the receiver fell down or I misread the coverage or this happened. And so I had to throw it, you know, I threw it here and the receiver had to make this incredible adjustment. These things happen, but the best players play through mistakes and part of that is that trade-off is like they they understand they like they work through the situation and they and they also kind of know who they are to figure out this the scenario i mean like you know it, it it's silly stuff but i mean you at the end of the day you, you know if you're watching what's my line anyway or something like that and a, a guy like robin williams comes on and he makes a mistake it's usually going to be even funnier than the actual thing that that occurs or like i watched a saturday night live skit where um kate mckinnon was on and apparently she's a uh she they do this skit where they they're meeting with like some sort of intelligence agency about alien abductions and that they've been uh, all three of the people were abducted by aliens and her whole skit is of this woman who's like you know really like sexually promiscuous and like kind of like just how 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 would i put it just kind of trailer park you know in terms of how she approaches everything her 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 viewpoint and way of life and the way that she she's talking about everything is making like the the guest um actors just break up on camera like they can't even handle it but the things that come out of them like end up having these mistakes are even funnier than what was intended you know, to see like Ryan Gosling trying not to cry on camera because what she's doing is so funny is it has an even greater intended effect of what their plan is. And that's why the show, that's why the show's lasted so long in, in many respects. Yeah, I completely agree. I, th I think that everybody thinks that the key is, is avoiding the mistakes and, and like, yeah, all three aspects of quarterback play are important. It's best to get positive plays and avoid sacks and avoid interceptions. If you can do that, that's great. But um, everybody thinks that, like, the avoiding interceptions is the most important part. And I would say that, like, it's the least important part. The, the most important part is can he make, you know, these positive plays? Can he make something happen? And ironically, you know, like, my reservation about Lawrence has nothing to do with the turnovers because – turnovers are it's pseudoscience it's it's noise mostly um you know maybe he's slightly higher than league average maybe he's slightly lower than league average but in the long run that it's not a big enough difference to really meaningfully matter my hesitation with lawrence is i just haven't seen enough yet um and maybe i'm not looking in the right places but he hasn't convinced me that he's going to be one of those guys who can make the, the positive plays that make the negative plays worth it you know he's not shown me that he is a Brett Favre or a Patrick Mahomes or a Peyton Manning where, you know, the juice is worth the squeeze, where, where the, the negative plays are the price of admission to the show and the show is going to be good enough to justify that price. Yeah. And I think that's a fair assessment. I would take a look at him as I think he's a tier below those types of players at this stage, which means he needs a little more help around him. He's a little bit more of a Dak Prescott type of player, which is, you know, with good, with enough talent around him. I think that it can it can work. I think he almost is there, but the offensive line, I think we're going to see next year if the Jaguars do what you'd hope they would, which is we've got enough skill talent at this point. Our offensive line is atrocious. Let's fix that. We can fix that, address, or at least go a long way towards fixing it with one or two additions that can make a difference. Um, I think we'll see better numbers from from um lawrence but you know we'll see how that goes yeah uh, i mean looking at players as, as probabilistic ranges of outcomes i think that like yes lawrence becomes a top five quarterback lawrence becomes a star um is 
very firmly within the range of, of possible. I would not be surprised by that in the slightest at this point. Yeah, you know, without a doubt. But um, but yeah. So I I don't know. Speaking of mistakes, I'm laughing because I I I'm you know you're we we do this on a video call and I and I laugh because like I'm I was gonna make fun of you about your sunglasses. But I'm, I'm not wearing a hat today, which is a very rare occurrence. In fact, so rare that as I look at myself, I see that I have this huge tan line at the top of my forehead um, because I'm wearing a hat most of the time. And I'm, and I'm thinking of like unintentional mistakes that are, that are in terms of comedy. I'm looking at myself and going, you know, I'm about to go to a Christmas party with my wife and I have this huge tan line at the top of my head because I'm wearing a hat. Maybe I should go outside in the sun for for the next week or so and uh you know get this shored up because i literally look like i've got like i'm wearing like a stripe you know those striped sweaters i feel like that like the top of my forehead is like a white stripe and the rest of it is like more of like my normal skin color so it's it, yeah. you know funny realizations you were, um, you were giving me a hard time for the sunglasses when i got on and you're oh but uh, yeah I, i'm i'm um sitting right in front of a south facing window and like 30 minutes into the show every time the sun hits like right in my face and so i'm i'm much more comfortable yeah. today once the sun comes out from behind all of the obstructions and that, so uh yeah. function over fashion but i do look pretty good in it i, I would say show. yeah and your face your skin tone is uniform across your head which is which i would say is a benefit you know i'm more of a function of i i do get out much but maybe i yeah, I need to I need to fix that. So anyway, <laughs> but um, I don't remember what we were going to talk about at the end, you know, after this. I think these were really the two subjects. We had a third, but I, you know, for the life of me, I, I don't know. And we're we're getting down to the point here where, you know, our hour's almost up. And, uh, you know, we just want to thank you guys for the feedback that you've provided um, about this show. Um, you know, it's really great to know that we have listeners that like you do, like, you know, the kind that we have, um, with that give thoughtful commentary and feedback and suggestions and just express their appreciation for the show. And, uh, we hope that, you know, you know, next week's Thanksgiving. So I know I'm going to be cooking a little bit. I imagine Adam will be too. So we're going to take Thanksgiving off. We hope that you enjoy your holiday and your football if it comes along with it, which I'm sure for most of you that's the case. Um, and uh, thanks again and have a good week.